Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We're human. We have feelings. We experience kind of good times and difficult times. To imagine that we would be immune to ever feeling anything or worrying about things or, you know, never getting anxious or sad, it, it just doesn't add up. That's what being human means. Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect podcast with me, your host, Poppy Jamie, recovering perfectionist and founder of mental wellness app, Happy Not Perfect. This show is about hitting pause while we explore the mind, soul, science, real life experiences and that confusing thing called happiness. Life throws curveballs and I believe the greatest healing comes from honest conversation. I'll be interviewing thought leaders, change agents, scientists and mystics for their insights and perspectives. I hope you'll join me on the journey. On today's show, we have Dr. Jessamy Hibbard, a clinical psychologist, TED speaker and best-selling author. She's the co-author and author behind The Imposter Cure and This Book Will series, helping readers to boost confidence, be more mindful, find calm, happiness and sleep better. So you can imagine how excited I was to sit down with Jessamy and explore her work, dive deep into our imposter feelings. Okay, so Jessamy, thank you so much for joining us on the Not Perfect podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I've been a big fan for a long time. And so let's kickstart the interview with our three favourite questions. What is your favourite quote at the moment? Um, at the moment, it's Dolly Parton. Don't work so hard making a living that you forget to make a life. Oh, that's a good one. I haven't heard that one yet. Yeah, I love it because I think that it's so easy to get caught up in everything you should be doing. But actually, what it's what's it all for? And it's just so simply put, it's a really good reminder. Definitely love that one. What's the most profound or not life lesson you've been reminded of recently? I think writing the book um, taught me a lot of lessons and one that was quite unexpected is just how um, kind of subtle perfectionism can be. And when I came to that chapter and I was writing it, I really knew that I wouldn't be kind of in that group of people. I don't work full time. I don't stew over small details. And yet when I researched it, I could see how many of the traps I fell into from, you know, the descent of working hard on one project, working hard on every project, the way it can narrow your life, the kind of push to keep doing more, but also this feeling that it's never quite enough. And what was so good was it made me really see it and reevaluate and think, you know, if it's never enough, why not pick the bits that you like best and concentrate on those? And by kind of really realising that, it's let me kind of try a new way of doing things, which I'm trying to put into practice. 
Wow. Oh God. When you were when you were saying all of that stuff, I'm like, oh me, I'm such a recovering perfectionist. And it is, it's kind of one of those things that's a daily check-in because it's easy to get back into these perfectionist habits. Definitely. And it's so sneaky. You don't really <laughs> see it. You kind of forget about the cost sometimes. And that also it's good to work hard sometimes, but just not all the time and to appreciate what you're doing and where you are as much as what you want to do. So true. I love that. And how do you define happiness? I think for me, it's more about a feeling. Mm. And often we confuse it with those kind of zingy feelings of excitement or those more intense feelings. Whereas actually, it's much closer to contentment. And it's more about kind of feeling satisfied with your life and taking pleasure from the things you're doing. And that it's fleeting too. You can't hold on to it. Actually, if you chase it, often it runs away from you. And so it's really about kind of thinking about the things that matter to you and your relationships and really concentrating on what's important, but knowing it won't be around all the time. And the key realization I had in terms of happiness was, you know, it's not these external things, mm. that life isn't a race to a destination. There's not a right way or a perfect formula as much as we want to believe that, but that actually it's more of an adventure. And that means that it takes the pressure off because there's no right way and you can explore and you can kind of look at things and do things and change your mind and that there's plenty of time. It's not this kind of, you know, five years and then I'm there. Right. It's, it's a lifetime. What are your three tips to feeling happier? I know this is a, a big one and it's a wide one, but if anyone um, would have some good tips, I know you would. Um, I think that my three main ones, which I thought a lot about from kind of, you know, this idea of life being an adventure, are to slow down and to really kind of give yourself time to enjoy what you're doing, take things in, and almost that idea if you're going at 100 miles an hour, you can't have an adventure, like mm. it's hard to enjoy things. But also that when you're chasing after goals, you're not stopping to see what you've already got. And in terms of putting it into practice, it's just taking life a bit slower when you can, but it's also doing things like um, gratitude. And at the moment, mm. I have this thing that I do with my husband where we email each other nice things that have happened that oh, day really? from things we're grateful for from each other to like the positive emotions like pride or love or serenity or hope. And it's just a way to hold on to the day a bit more and see through the kind of murk of all the things that can be challenging or, you know, rushing you through life. And it just lets you kind of take a step back and take things in. You say this one thing which really resonated too, thoughts aren't facts. Would you mind expanding on that a little? Yeah, thoughts aren't facts is one of the first things we learned when we were training. And I had a bit of a moment then too in terms of being like, okay, that just makes so much sense. And yet until you're told it, it's almost like you don't really see it because so often when our mind's chatting away, we kind of just listen to it and take it as true, whether it's, you know, oh, they gave me a funny look or I did really badly. Whereas actually they're not facts. They're just an idea that you've got about how things are going. They're really influenced by how you're feeling. So depending on your mood, that will have a big impact on how you're thinking. And by starting to see that thoughts aren't facts, it gives you a bit of a step back to be able to question some of them, particularly the ones that are causing you problems, and see that there might be another explanation. Right. And what I think I struggle with is uh, knowing which ones are facts, you know, because some of them, you are right in your thoughts. And then often, <laughs> mine are like 98%, I'm, I'm not right. But like, do you have a strategy to 
to kind of even just go through with yourself, right, actually that thought is a little bit more factual than this one is totally crazy. Yeah, definitely. And your thoughts are really important and it is worth paying attention to them, the same as your feelings, but it's just also having that gap and seeing that they're not always right and that there's room for error. And I think particularly where there's a really strong emotion like anxiety or low mood or insecurity that colors what you're thinking and feeling and so in those moments being able to just kind of stop and think okay well what's actually going on here and almost thinking about it in terms of evidence have I got any evidence to show that this is Mm, right evidence and what's tricky is that often the thought has like a shred of truth to it so it's not completely crazy or ridiculous maybe you saw someone that morning and they're a bit off with you (laughs) but the reality is (laughs) that that there could be more than one explanation. And so thinking about it in terms of what else could be going on, what you'd say to a friend if they told you about it, mm. um, and just kind of going through those other explanations or even thinking, you know, if I was in a good mood, how would I see this? Have you noticed um, that since kind of implementing that in your life, you've spent more time making sure you're actually telling people you love them? Is that is that important? Yeah, I think it's definitely important because so often our mind pulls us to problems and trying to fix things or thinking about the things that aren't working. And actually it's taking on board the full picture of your life so that you're seeing all of it rather than the bits that you want to work on. And when you start to tune into them, it's like a positive kind of virtuous circle. Mm. It just brings you more and more. And I think that often we're really a bit dubious of this kind of thing because it sounds too simple. Right. And if things are difficult, it's not enough on its own. But as part of, you know, a daily practice or a regular thing that you're thinking about and doing it makes such a difference because it really lets you tune into all the good things you've already got. Okay, so tip two. So number two is to have some empty time. And I think that often, and I'm definitely guilty of this, it feels like you've got to be productive all the time, work really hard, make your time count. Whereas actually having empty time is really important in terms of rest and recovery. And it's also a really good time to kind of tune into your body and mind. And by taking that kind of break, it actually refreshes you to come back in a better way. And I think that I saw a really great picture um, recently on Instagram and it said something like, you know, when phones were tied up, humans were free. And I think that that's, <laughs> that's quite excellent. a good one when it comes to empty time, because if you're in the queue at the supermarket, then you can check your phone. If you're walking around, you can be on your phone at the same time, whereas a really simple kind of way of getting more empty time is to put your phone down or put it away and like get bored in the queue or look at look at the kind of route you're taking and taking what's around you do you find people are scared of empty time I think people are definitely scared of empty time and there's a guilt that comes with it too in terms of oh you know I'm not being productive and I think you're exactly right in terms of this idea that oh what's going to catch up with me if I stop tip three Number three is what I call natural highs and it comes back to that idea of happiness and again it's something really simple that I think we often overlook that you've got to be doing the things that make you feel good and making time for them in your life Mm. and that means the things that really make you feel alive whether it's you know for me that's things like running, spending time with my family and friends, um, giving back and kind of my relationships or kindness but it's really about finding what works for you and making sure that that's planned into your week or into your day and again seeing that that's an important part of life and enjoying life so will you actually write a list and say okay in the last week what did I do and so you can really see on paper hold on a minute I actually haven't incorporated any natural highs into this week 
I would like to say that I did that, (laughs) (laughs) but I don't. And I think it is a really good idea, particularly if you're trying to incorporate it more into Mm. your time. But I suppose what I do is just really kind of pay attention to how I'm feeling. And if I've had a particularly busy week and things are really full on, then I try and make time for going to yoga. Or if I'm feeling um, stressed, then I'll go for a run. Or if I've, you know, had a tough time, then I'll open up to somebody and talk about it. And um, listening out for kind of what you need and having fun as part of that. So let's take a turn and dive into your brilliant book that has just been released, The Imposter Cure. The Imposter Cure is about experiencing and managing and curing the um, imposter syndrome. It is just a little note on this book. It is so brilliantly written. I It was a total page page churner. I read it in a day. Um, it, it's so good. And I just wanted to know everything that's in there. Um, but what is imposter syndrome? Um, imposter syndrome was first described by two clinical psychologists called Dr. Clance and Dr. Immis. And they called it a phenomenon in which people don't feel worthy of their success and have a persistent belief in their lack of ability or competence, despite loads of evidence to the contrary. And the way I think about it is that it's like a faulty belief. Whenever you're doing something difficult or you kind of care about what you're doing, but you're not sure how you're going to do yet, it's natural to experience some discomfort. And for imposters, they misinterpret that discomfort. So they feel it and they feel like, oh, God, I'm not up to this. You know, I'm not going to be able to do it. If I was confident, I wouldn't feel like this or if I was ready for it. And they don't realise that actually we all feel like that. It's completely natural to feel kind of uncertain of yourself, but you've just got to kind of go for it anyway. In the book, you write really good examples. I feel like you have a character called Poppy. (laughs) (laughs) which I thought was which I read it and I was like I think this is she I can totally relate to Poppy in the book I can funnily enough Poppy has a bit of me in it too (laughs) (laughs) right it was um it was really 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 great and so what are the some of the signs that you may have imposter syndrome or people around you friends and family may be experiencing it I think it is normally friends and family who see it because when you're feeling like an imposter, you're sure you are and that it's not imposter syndrome. You're actually not very good at this. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so it can be hard to see. But things to think about are um, not feeling worthy of your success, feeling like you might be found out as kind of less competent or good at what you're doing, finding it really hard to take on board compliments and praise, Mm. putting loads of things you do down to things like luck or external circumstances, and also kind of comparing yourself to others and imagining that they've got it way more together than you or they know what they're doing. And what do you think the cause is for imposter syndrome? I suppose the cause comes from kind of lots of different places and it can be linked to your kind of temperament and personality type as well as your experiences growing up and... um, how success is defined in your family Mm. um, and the kind of experiences that you've had. But I guess in simple terms, it's about this belief that you've got. And when you have a belief, rather than it just being a view you hold, it becomes this thing that you want to prove right. And so we hold on to them tightly. And that means imposters have two rules when they do well. It's down to external circumstances. So luck or I just worked really hard. Anyone could have done it. Whereas if anything goes badly, it's a personal failing and completely down to them. So it's like you can't ever really take on board your success. And no matter how much you're doing, you never feel connected to it because you're not talking about it. You're constantly seeing all your faults and not believing that you're any good. And so there's this gap between how you're doing and how you see yourself that just doesn't match up. 
And I think, you know, and the book explores this in more detail, um, but the conditioned mind is so hard to change. And would you mind explaining um, a bit what the conditioned mind kind of means? Yeah, so I suppose if you think about how you form beliefs when you're growing up, you know, you know, you learn from the people closest to you. So that generally involves family members or kind of teachers. And when you're that age, your mind is much more immature. So you just know about life in a really limited way. And most things you put down to yourself, you know, what you've done, how you've thought about things, um, and that you might be to blame if anything's not so good. So if you were told, for example, you are useless at maths and if you did do well on one test well then that was pure fluke and you and and thus carry on that belief for the for your for the rest of your life that you are useless at maths yeah and so you start to make decisions based on the fact that you believe you're useless at maths even though this doesn't need may not even be true and you actively collect evidence that supports that belief Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So your beliefs aren't just, you know, kind of insignificant they have emotion attached to them and we it then filters our view so you get this confirmation bias and I think that it's easy to see when you think about um, say if you're in an argument and you only kind of see your point as right or if you support a sports team or political party you kind of see all the good in them but you ignore any other views mm. and that's exactly the same with beliefs um, we, we build them up rather than kind of finding evidence to discount them or challenge them and that's why re-evaluating and taking stock and kind of updating your views is so important if you think about when you grow up you do that with pretty much everything but we never really do it with ourselves and do you think you only need you do you think you can challenge your beliefs by yourself or do you think it is much more helpful with a therapist I think that you can do it yourself, but I think about beliefs operating a bit like a prejudice, so you hold them really strongly. And mm. if you think about someone who you know who holds a prejudice, you don't just say to them, actually, this isn't the case. You know, these people, are, this group of people are really nice. They, like, have all these reasons why they're not. You've got, they've got to actively want to change the view, and that's the same with the beliefs you hold about yourself. You've got to actively want to see yourself differently. That means p- paying attention not just to one thing, but to loads of information that shows a different view. And in a way it's kind of being more fair to yourself in terms of how you view things and the information you take on board so you're not going with this confirmation bias all the time. Can you tell us a little bit more about the evolutionary origins of insecurity and self-doubt? 
Yeah, I found this really interesting mm. when I was researching it because I kind of didn't know the answer to it before I wrote the book. And I thought, you know, there's got to be something that's useful about this. Otherwise, why why, why does everybody have it? Yeah, why, do, why are we all so self-doubting? Yeah, and when I looked into it, it's about our evolutionary history. And if you think about it, you know, long ago, our main aim was to stay alive. And this mm. idea of kind of survival of the fittest meant that we had to be really on guard for any threats and any potential problems. And so insecurity and self-doubt was part of that self-awareness. And it was a way to kind of look at things and think about potential dangers and also to kind of rate yourself and see how well you could do if you just went into everything without any care about the risk or, you know, with a just complete belief in yourself, then you'd we'd probably be dead, you know, like (laughs) we wouldn't have managed to keep going so long. And what else I found really interesting about it is it's also kind of coming back to the importance of our relationships too. So having a bit of insecurity and self-doubt helps you to understand people better and be more empathic and kind of more tuned Mm. into people. And so there's that, actually a positive to being self, self-doubtful and insecure. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and I think what's um, so good about seeing it in that way is that it almost can keep it into a smaller space than letting it take over. And mm-hmm. that you can also see how it's intertwined with confidence. You know, like we don't all start off confident. It's mm-hmm. that you kind of think about wanting to do something. Can I do it? And you kind of go towards these things. And it's that cycle of I can do it. To, I can't do it. To kind of getting to know yourself better and learning and building and if you see it as a problem for confidence it can get in the way whereas if you just see it as as part of learning and part of kind of finding the right way and it can be a good thing and I also think it it allows us to accept our insecurities um, and self-doubts because we've had hundreds of years of evolving I suppose this genetic predisposition to feeling insecure so if we're feeling insecure it's okay like we're human exactly and humans have a tendency to feel insecure because it helped us once exactly and i i love what you're saying because i think that that is what it's about we're human we have feelings we experience kind of good times and difficult times to imagine that we would be immune to ever feeling anything or worrying about things or you know never getting anxious or sad it it just doesn't add up that's what being human means you, this kind of brings me quite nicely onto just a sentence you wrote, which really resonated. Growth isn't meant to be comfortable. And I think that kind of links with that in a way. Being a human being isn't all going to be hunky-dory. Yeah, definitely. And I think that the thing about growth is, you know, because it's a good thing, you almost feel like it's going to feel good and it's going to be easy or straightforward. But the reality is that it often comes from stepping outside of your comfort zone. And so often we're doing things on autopilot because we know them really well. Whereas when you're trying something new or challenging yourself or pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone, you're out of that autopilot. And so it does feel a bit daunting. Mm. And One of the ways I think about it is it's a bit like learning a new language. You know, at first, it's a bit awkward, particularly if you're me, you probably don't have a very good accent and it feels a bit clunky to begin with. But then the more you practice, the easier it becomes and the more natural it becomes as well. So let's say for all of us, um, mainly I'm asking this from a selfish position, who are trying to overcome imposter syndrome, what would you say are some key takeaway tips we can start practicing or working on today to have some growth out of it I think that a big thing is to kind of hear that imposter voice and it goes back to where we started in terms of thoughts 
aren't facts. And the same with that feeling you feel like an imposter, but it doesn't mean you are. And when you start to hear that voice and recognise what it's saying as not necessarily the truth, it gives you a chance to go against it and do things differently. I think another really big thing is that you have to start to internalise your success and see that actually it's really important to take on board those things. That's not being arrogant or it's not going to mean that you kind of stop caring or have an inflated ego. It's just about really Mm. seeing the full picture of your life and really taking on board the good things that are happening and the part that you're playing in that rather than discrediting it so that you can update your view and connect to these things and kind of see yourself differently. You talk about failure in the book, which is a really interesting word. Um, I think when we think of failure a lot of us will shudder at the thought Mm. of it. Um, How can you learn to fail? Uh, Yeah, how can you learn to fail? I think that the thing about kind of mistakes and failure is it comes back to this idea that there's a way to do life where you don't ever have to do that and that that would be a good thing. Mm. Whereas my kind of belief, and it's proven through all the research and even, you know, I research loads of people's careers, failure is just a part of life and it's a part of doing well. And that rather than being something to be scared of, it's actually something to embrace. And like you say, it's it's horrible failing. Like it doesn't feel good, but actually you can learn a lot from it. And it does increase your resilience because you start to see that you can cope even with the things that you thought you might not be able to cope with. And it kind of shows you a bit more about yourself. And when you see it as part of the process and part of what gets you to where you want to go, it becomes less scary. And again, it's about kind of giving yourself permission to fail. Where do you think the fear of failure comes from? I think it's a really good question. I don't know, but at some point or another, we've got into this idea that you're meant to do it right Mm. and that there's a right way and a wrong way. And perhaps in part it is, you know, perfection's on on the increase, it's rising. Research shows that more of us suffer from it now and so when you're going for that failure isn't an option you know it's about being 100% doing your best on everything and I think also you know just kind of thinking about it with you now it's also this idea that we shouldn't be vulnerable you know that we should Mm. know what we're doing all the time be able to get on with it and again it ignores all these things about what it means to be human and also just how important those things are and in the book I think about it almost like you know, a common cold, if you try to always avoid illness, that actually wouldn't be good for you. You need to get ill sometimes to build up your immunity. And it's the same with mistakes and failure. If you never fail or you never make a mistake when it happens, actually it's more devastating rather than seeing, okay, I can recover from this. I've learned more about myself. And often, you know, particularly if I think about it personally, many of the things I've found out or that haven't worked out in the way I thought have built me up for the thing that came next in a really good way. If you could give one tool to any 18-year-old leaving school, because you have the ultimate toolbox, and there are so many tools um, with all the science and wonderful psychology backing them up, but if you could give one tool from your toolbox to an 18-year-old, what would it be and why? I think based on what we're talking about today and this idea of perfection, it's seeing that that doesn't exist Mm -hmm. and that when you set yourself up for that, you're always going to fall short. Whereas actually when you live life in a way that allows for mistakes and failure, gives room for vulnerability and not knowing it all, you know, gives space for learning and trying new things and not kind of always getting it right, life is much more enjoyable. And like we've been saying a lot, you know, there isn't a right way. It's human to get it wrong or to feel bad sometimes or to not feel good all the time. And even, you know, like this idea, live your best life. I actually think that's problematic because what about just living your life and seeing how that goes first? (laughs) (laughs) and just taking the pressure off. 
So true, so true. Um, to finish off, we like to play a quick round. So I invite you to finish the sentence that I begin. I relax by... Exercising. The person I love most in the world is... My husband and three children. The last dream I had was... Uh, the last one I had was quite an anxious dream. I was on Women's Hour and the night before I was having these kind of repeating dreams about missing the train and then not being able to find the phone number, not seeing properly to be able to do the numbers. So, yeah. And, and how do you cope with an anxious dream? Will you just get out of bed? What's your kind of strategy for getting back to sleep? I generally kind of, my go-to coping strategy is putting my thoughts on a leaf and watching them wash, wash down a river. Oh. And so rather than getting into the thoughts, just kind of letting them wash away. Because the thing is, at night time, your thoughts can go a bit kind of out of control in terms of mm. thinking about worst case scenarios. We're more prone to it at night. So generally, I try not to get into them. And I like my sleep, so I try and get back to sleep quickly. <laughs> That's a really good tip. I needed that. I needed to know that last night. Um, I'm dying to have dinner with. Um, Renee Brown, or I could <sighs> equally put in all my best friends. Ah, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> but also, I'm a crazy um, Renee Brown um, fan. She's amazing. If I could do it all again, I would. I think be a bit more vulnerable when I was younger. Best thing I bought recently was a bike. <laughs> I just bought a bike because I <laughs> don't have one that works properly. And um, yeah, I want to get into cycling. Best piece of advice I was given was. Recently, I think it's this idea of having different gears, you know, that you don't have to be going fast all the time. You can shift between them and that depending what you're doing, you know, you can adjust the gear because there's a part of me that is very like full on when I do things. And I find it hard to have that middle ground. But that idea just lets me do it in a different way. It's like, OK, for that situation, I can do that, whereas I don't have to do it for every situation. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Fifth gear. I can now go to third gear. It's OK. I yeah. Can, wow, I like that. My first thought in the morning usually is... What have I got to do today? <laughs> I'd love to think it was like meditate, but... <laughs> Let's be real. Yeah. <laughs> Before I go to sleep, I... Tuck my kids into bed and give my husband a hug. Mm. When I'm feeling insecure, I... Talk to a friend or someone who cares about it. And I remind myself that I'm not alone. If you really knew me, you would know. I phoned up my husband on the way here and I was like, help me think of a really good answer to this. And we basically ended up laughing because with me, what you see is what you get. And I really wear my heart on my sleeve. And even the times when I think I'm being subtle or kind of not giving too much away, everybody just sees it. So again, I'm kind of what I'm, you I'm see. Here. I love that. <laughs> me too. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, that's been a really insightful. I've learned so much from you. And thank you so much for your time. Um, as said, all the information on your books are going to be in the show notes. I couldn't encourage everyone um, to read them more. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved talking to you. And it's been great to be part of the podcast. So thank you. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Of course, it would be amazing and very appreciated if you wouldn't mind hitting subscribe and sharing this podcast. You can find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram. DM me questions or any guest suggestions. I'd love to hear from you. And also, if you have a moment, download Happy Not Perfect. It's my mindfulness app that helps you manage stress, anxiety, sleep, 
and ultimately makes you feel happier every single day in less than five minutes. See you next time. Sending you lots of love and energy. Till then. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.